Thanks for listening to the Northridge Christian Podcast. At Northridge, we exist to help people move closer to Christ. We believe that following Jesus is a journey, and we want to help you through that journey any way we can. We pray that you grow in your walk with God through this message today. So prepare your heart and mind for this teaching by our group's pastor, John Shaw. Hey, question for you. How long do I have to be here before I, have to, I can stop saying I'm new to the area? Like, is that a, a year, two years? Like, what, what, what is that? You know, anytime you move somewhere new, you got to learn a lot of new stuff, like taxes, registering your car, new laws. You know, Georgia has some pretty weird laws, right? (laughs) There's one law that says you cannot have an ice cream cone in your back pocket on Sundays. Apparently, somebody told me this in between services because I I didn't know. Uh, People, horse thieves, were using it to steal thieves, the horses, and the horse is just following me, so it's not my fault. So I thought that was interesting. Did you know that you are not allowed to eat uh, fried chicken with a fork in Gainesville? Uh, None of these are fact-checked, but I saw it in multiple places, so it's got to be true, right? Um, In Atlanta, in Atlanta, you cannot carry another man, you cannot give another man a piggyback ride. And you can also, you cannot tie your giraffe to a light pole. I I don't know where these came from. Did you know that uh, almost every child is a felon? Because you are not allowed to throw rocks at a bird. Georgia law, Georgia law. Uh, And then, did you know that state assembly people uh, cannot get a speeding ticket when the assembly is in session? I never really wanted to get into politics, uh, but now I kind of do. You know, that's, that's kind of a handy perk. Um, But I joke because today we're going kind of deep. We're talking about the law, and I I just want to break things up uh, lightheartedly. If you're new with us and you missed last week, uh, we're starting a new series on Romans, um, and and Jonathan got us off to a great start. And man, like I love Romans. I I remember when I was in college and I was getting serious about my faith, and I was reading through Romans, and I was like underlining and highlighting and making notes, and like Romans changes people. Like for centuries, Romans has been changing people. In the fourth century, uh, Augustine of Hippo uh, was just a hedonistic man. He was living a lavish lifestyle. Um, His mom was a believer. He thought she was crazy. But one day he was at a party and he just felt the weight of the world come upon himself. Uh, What he would later understand is what his mom would call sin. And he just went outside weeping. He went under a tree and he just cried. Um, and he heard children like singing in the way off yonder. And he thought he heard them say, take and read, take and read. So he went and opened his Bible to Romans 13. And there's this verse that says to put off the sins of the flesh. And so he did. And he ran to Jesus and he was changed and saved. And Augustine became St. Augustine. He, he became one of the most prolific writers of the fourth century that kind of informed a lot of the rest of Christianity. Uh, fast forward about a thousand years. You have Martin Luther. He's this monk, and, and man, he just felt like the only true thing about him was his sin. That there was a God who was only always judging him and like looking over his shoulder. And he just, if he was honest, he hated reading Bible and Romans because he felt like it was just talking about this righteousness of God and this God that he could never measure up to. But then as he started studying, he realized that's not what Romans was about at all. That Romans was about grace and Christ freeing us, and it sparked the Reformation. And then fast forward another couple hundred years, you have John Wesley, the the famous preacher for the Great Awakening here in America, and he was what he would say, a Christian in name only. 
And he was walking down the street one day and he heard some people talking about Romans. They were reading actually Luther's commentary on Romans. And he said as he listened, he felt his heart strangely warmed and that he truly did believe and went on to change American history in a way. Romans has been changing people for centuries. This is such an important book that we're spending 10 weeks in it. And Jonathan started us last week on chapter 6. The idea of sin did a great job on that. And today we're going to be in chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them on, open them up. We'll, we'll be there all day so you can just kind of hang out there. But chapter 6 and 7 can be some of the more difficult chapters to understand. Most of us in our context understand sin, but sometimes the law can be a little bit vague for us. Um, so let me just tell you, the law in this regards is... Um, what we would refer to, you would think, like the Ten Commandments, right? For a Jew, it is much more than that. You would first have the Mosaic Law, which would include the first five books of the Bible, what they would call the Pentateuch. Um, but then beyond that, they have the Torah, which is what we would call the Old Testament. But Torah, really uh, translated, is law or guidance or, or path. And within the Torah, there are 613 kind of rules that they pulled out of that, and that, that was the law. And like you and I hear 613, are like, ooh, like that's a lot. Like, how are you supposed to do that? Well, the Jews felt the same way. Like, we're not alone in this. And so that was part of the reason why Paul wrote this section, but it's not all of it. Um, let me just give you a little bit more history. I'll go back to uh, what Jonathan said last week. Um, and he talked about the history. So the Roman church had been in existence for about 10 years, and it was mostly Jews that had become believers. And then a, a Caesar came in and he said, I don't like the Jews, and they kicked them all out of Rome. And for about five years, there were no Jews in Rome. And then a new Caesar came in, and he said, you can come on back, you're fine. And the Jews are excited to return to their home and to their church. But what they didn't realize is the church has changed. Because while they were gone, the Gentiles had been leading it, and then more Gentiles had come into the fold, and now the church had a more Gentile flavor to it. And so there's this tension between Gentile believers and Jewish believers. And, and really, the heart of this tension, one of the tensions, was the law. Because for a Jewish person, the law was everything. Like, it was everything. Like, this is, everything's based off of this. And so Paul's writing this to clarify to both Jew and Gentile, what is the law? What is the purpose of the law. What role does it play in the life of a Christian? How much does it apply to a Gentile Christian? What does it play in your life? Is it still authoritative, which the New Testament says it is? And if it is, what does that look like? And does it have direct or indirect authority? What am I supposed to do with all of this when I read it? And if I can just sum it up for you in just a couple words, it's like this. The law is good, but limited. The law is good. That's what Paul wants us to know. He created it for our good, um, but it can't do what it's not designed to do. Okay? So he says several times that it's good. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Verse 12, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So Paul says that the law is a good thing, but how? How is the law a good thing? Well, three things. First, it reveals God's character. When you, when you read a list of rules, really you're reading something about the rule giver, like what they believe and, and what's important to them. And so when the law says, do not covet, 
The law is saying, or is saying about God that, that I am a provider, and you don't need to worry about these things. It says, do not commit adultery. He's saying, I am a promise keeper, and you are made in my image. So the law tells us about God. Next, it reveals God's will. And that, that's a good thing, right? Like, we want to know what God wants for our lives. And so it tells us to live in some ways and not in other ways. And this might be included in this, but it also identifies sin. We see this verse 7. I would not have known what sin was except for through the law. Like, sometimes you're wondering, like, how do I live this life, this Christian life? What does it look like? And that's what these rules, the guidance... Is for. That's why we have Psalm 119. It is the longest chapter in the Bible. And it's just this poem that is just line after line after line, basically why the law is awesome and cool. And then 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul tells us that all Scripture, and he's talking about the Old Testament specifically, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So it's good. It's holy, righteous, good problem. The law can point the way, but it can't get us there. The law is good, but this is the limited piece. It can tell us where to go, but it can't take us to where we need to be. And it can't accomplish the goal set out for us to accomplish. And it's not the law's fault. Like, it's our fault. What Paul calls the flesh, our sinful nature, is what causes the law to not work. It's our weakness, because we are curved towards idolatry and towards sin. The law is limited. It's kind of like your GPS. When, when you're driving around, you're trying to go somebody, man, that GPS is bossy, isn't she? In, in two miles, turn left. In, in 200 yards, turn left. Turn left now! Go left! Why didn't you turn left? Take a U-turn. Like, she is trying her hardest to get you where you want to go. Problem, she cannot reach down and push the brake for you. She cannot turn the steering wheel for you. The GPS is limited, just like the law is limited. She can only take you as far as we go. And since we're messed up, it doesn't work. In fact, not only does it not work, sometimes it makes the problem worse, doesn't it? Continuing in verse 7, For I would not have known what coveting really was, if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring me life brought death. Just, just think about a group of junior high boys at a swimming pool. Like, you have this, this list of rules. Somebody put, took some time to put together these list of rules because they care about these kids and they don't want them to get hurt. Like, do not run, do not jump, don't eat and get in, you know, like, don't wrestle. Like, somebody cares about them. What does a junior high boy see? A list of a really good way to have fun, right? A challenge. Like, a junior high boy sees that, and do not run backwards and jump in the pool. I didn't even think about running backwards and jumping in the pool. Now I have to do that, right? <laughs> or, or like these radar speed signs. Like, we got these either end of log cabin. How many of you in this room view this as a challenge? Not as, not as a caution to slow down. And this is what the law does. Again, it's not the law's fault. It's ours, but it's what happens. And then not only does it encourage us to sin, and this is more limited, this is what it's, it, it can point us in the right direction, but you have that one kid, you know, that one driver, oh, I'm going to follow the rules. 
Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go the speed limit. I'm going to go under the speed limit. And then they're thinking, ooh, I'm better than these other kids. I'm better than these other drivers. And all of a sudden, you get a little self-righteous and proud of yourself. And that in itself is a sin. It's causing division and strife amongst believers and friends. It creates, at least in our mind, this class system of who's good and bad and who's best, right? So law is good, but it's limited. It can't accomplish what it wasn't designed to do. And, And that's what this whole next section is about 11 through 20, you can read it on your own, but it's just, just talking about this constant battle in our lives. Like, I want to do what's good, but then I realize what the law is saying, and then I want to do what's bad, and, and it's just this cyclical problem. And then verse 19, we get to this famous verse from Paul, for I do not know the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Man, I don't think there's a believer in all of Christendom that hasn't at some point in their life like felt this on a deep level, right? Something more was needed. The law is good, but it's limited. So what are we going to do? Notice I skipped the first part of the chapter. Uh, Paul does something really interesting here. He actually starts with the solution to the problem before he gets to the problem. And and he does it with a story, kind of like a preacher would do. So I'm just going to let him preach. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, he's talking to the Jews, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law, and she is not if she marries another man. I think you're bright enough to get where he's going, right? But for those of you that fell asleep while I was reading that, this law applies to us today as well. This this marriage law. You are married. You are bound by the marriage law, right? If one of them dies, one of the partners dies, then you are no longer bound by that law. The same is true between us. He continues, So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. That's through his death. That you might belong to another. To him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we can serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. See, believers, it's you and I that have been released. We have died to the law, and now the old person is dead, and the law no longer has sway over us. We've been made alive in Christ and now united in him in the new way of the Spirit. And maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, hey, I'm not Jewish. Like, I'm not under the law, right? No, Paul makes it very clear that each and every one of us has an innate nature in us that recognizes the law. And even if we haven't seen that written down, like, we live by a certain set of codes and standards that that we feel like gets us to God or makes God happy with us. He says in Romans 2.14, Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have it. See, we all have that thing that we're bound to. But here's the thing I need you to understand is that Christ saved you from the law. 
Like he saved you from the law. He freed us so it's no longer hanging over us, pointing in the, the right direction, but it can't take us there. And I know some of you in this room, like this is a, like a weight lifted off your shoulders. Like you have been living your whole Christian life feeling like there is a God who is just judging you against this list of things that you can never measure up to, that you can never keep with, and you just feel unworthy, and you can't get there. And Jesus is crying out to you, and he's saying, I have satisfied the law. You are good. You are set. You don't have to worry about this anymore. And for some of us, like, that's the thing that you need to hear today. And if that's all you hear, that's fine. But for the rest of us, there's more. See, what we have to understand is that we now have a new relationship with the law. And Paul says in verse 6, we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. So even though we've been saved from the law, that doesn't mean the law just disappears and has nothing to do with us anymore. No, no, no. Jesus was very clear, and I want to be very careful about this. I want to be very careful about this, okay? I need you to hear that Paul, that Jesus himself said, I do not, did not come to abolish it. Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. Like, this is important for us. It doesn't disappear. It changes our relationship with him. And there's an analogy about this that I love. So there's a, a husband and a wife, and they were married, and it was not, not a very loving relationship. The husband... Like, he had this list of things that his wife had to do. Like, she had to clean the house, and it better be spotless. Like, she had to cook, and it better not be burnt. The laundry, it better be done, right? After a couple of years, uh, this man, he died. And a couple of years later, she marries a new man. Oh, man, he loved her. Like, he wanted the best for her. He cared for her. He did not have any demands for her. And one day she is cleaning the house and she comes across this list from her, her ex-husband and she realized all these things on the list she was doing for her new husband. Not, not because she had to, but because she wanted to. Because she loved her husband so much. We have been given this new life, not bound by the law, but has given us a new freedom, a freedom that lives for Christ, which we didn't have before, and it frees us from living recklessly and legalistically. It frees us from a lifestyle that is stress-filled, and now we get to live in a relationship with Christ where we make decisions based on not a set of rules, but a person that we love. And that is so important. One of my favorite professors and authors, David Timms, he, he summed it up like this. He said, the language that courses through the Christian's bloodstream and threatens to undermine our lives is the language of law. And many believers demonstrate alarming affluency in this destructive dialect. The language of law uses terms of obligation, duty, and demand. Just listen to yourself speak. Read what you write and look for terms like should, ought to, have to, need, must. I need to be more compassionate. I should be serving. I ought to pray more. I must read my Bible. I have to go to church. This language reflects a language of obligation and does little more than compound our guilt when we don't live up to it. We become victims 
to the law. The language of grace, the language of love, which can only come because of Christ, results in a new language and a different set of terms. I want to be more compassionate. I'd like to serve. I choose to pray. I desire to read my Bible. I can't wait to go to church. Only as we voice this latter language will the shackles of the law begin to loosen and the freedom of the gospel invade our actions. And I love that. See, when we approach the law from a perspective of what we have to do, of obligation, rather than of joy, of what we get to do, we inevitably feel resistance and resentment. But when we recognize, when we recognize how God changed our relationship with the law, it, it, it frees us to see the law as what God intended it to be, a guide a path, a direction to follow, as somebody, something that comes alongside you and helps you rather than something that's hanging over you. You can live in a completely different way of freedom, choosing God's plan, recognizing us for our benefit, and not to cause undue stress or overblown self-righteousness. And that's, that's our sermon in a sentence. Christ saved us from the law so we might love the law, not serve the law. Like, this is such an important thing for us to understand, and man, like, I loved writing the sermon. Like, like, sometimes I don't really enjoy it, but this is something that's been, like, in the back of my head for a long time. Like, I kind of understood, but I've never really put words to, and I think it is so important for every Christian to believe what Christ did on the cross for you, that this relationship has transitioned us from a, a world of ought-tos and have-tos to a world of grace where we get to and I want to. So just one practical thing as we close. This week, I just want you to watch your language. As you're talking with loved ones, as you're writing, as you are spending time with coworkers in the classroom or, or in your community group, what language do you use? Is it the language of law and obligation? You have to do stuff. You must do stuff. Or are you living under the law of grace and love where you get to, where you, where you have the choice and you want to? Like this transition, this shift in your mind and your relationship with God changes everything. So God, we come before you and we pray that you, you just show us, you open our eyes to Romans, how you have conquered the law on our behalf, how you have saved us from our guilt and shame and from the obligation to the law. But God, at the same time, I pray that you teach us to love the law. God, help us recognize the place the law is in our lives and how it guides us and how important that is for us. God, we are so grateful for you, the work that you've done, and we ask that you change us, change our language, change who we are in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Like I said, this was a fun sermon for me to write. Like, it was a heavy sermon, but I believe, I truly believe that there are some of you in this room that forever have been hanging around with this, this cloud over your head, 
that you, just like Martin Luther, feel like there's a God just judging you and that you can never measure up. My prayer for you is that you let that go. That you realize what God's work on the cross did for you and it frees you to be you in Him. I also like this sermon because I know there are some people who have chosen to not follow Jesus because they are afraid of coming under a law of somebody that, that they're afraid of. My prayer for you is stop waiting. The law is not against you. The law is something that is for you. It's because he loves you and he wants to use it as a guide for you. If you are ready, like come talk to one of us. We're going to have prayer people in the four corners of the room. We would love to pray for you. Maybe you just need to sit there in this as we sing this next song and maybe you just need to just spend some time with God. Maybe you need to come to the altar and give something up. Whatever it is during this song, don't let these words be hollow. Let Jesus and let Romans change you. Understand. Thanks for listening to this message. You can keep up with what's happening at Northridge on your mobile device through our Northridge Christian app. If you have any questions about Northridge, you can contact us at info at northridge.online.